You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Emily sprinted down the hall, pleading with her boots to make less noise on the white marble flooring. The air in the house was still and silent, but it roared in her ears as she flew by door after door, hallway after hallway. Her limbs pumped, footfalls matching the rapid beat of her heart. She was only a few years and a few twists of fate removed from silver medals in cross-country. She would have already escaped except for her boots. The boots were the problem. She would have worn sneakers if she'd known she'd be running for her life. The fanny pack wasn't much help either, but it carried her tools. The newspapers called it eco-terrorism. But come on, is it really terrorism to spray paint some slogans on a few walls? Sure, the walls were interior walls, and sure, those interior walls were inside the painfully tacky mansion of an oil exec, but still... Terrorism? Lucas, Pat, Josh, Damien, and Emily. They would sneak in as waitstaff for fancy house parties, or they posed as gardeners, maids, drivers. Once they served hors d'oeuvres at an orgy. After they were inside, it was easy to disappear into one of the hundreds of rooms, closets, cabinets, and wait until the house was asleep. Then the spray paint came out. Social media loved it. Cable News called it Accelerationism, which Emily found bleakly hilarious, considering the severe concussion she'd received from one of those two cops at the pipeline protest last summer. The pipeline still got built, and all she had to show for it was a migraine every time it rained. The cops didn't even get administrative leave. So, Cable News was right about one thing. Traditional protests weren't working. Alternate avenues had to be found. Emily and the rest of the crew had tagged a few of the smaller players in oil and gas, exploiting weaknesses in their supposedly secure communities, getting their reps in before going after a truly big fish. That was tonight's raid, executed within the sprawling gated community that housed most of the executives for the various concerns owned by Kincaid Industries, mining, lumber, industrial chemicals, and, of course, oil and gas. Michael Spencer, the COO of Kincaid Oil and Gas, nestled in his bed after a particularly lavish party, none the wiser to the protest action happening in his own foyer. Except, Spencer must have been a news junkie. That was the only explanation. He'd seen the reports, knew that he might be a target, and then that rich fuck must have beefed up his protection, which explained the guard. 
But it didn't explain what the guard had done to Josh's spine, or why he'd used a... A shadow flickered across the moonlight streaming through the far window. Emily pressed her back against the nearest wall, edging herself behind a pedestal topped with a garish bust of Nero. She made her body as small as possible, hugging her knees to her chest, and quieted her breathing. Unfortunately, there was nothing she could do about the manic thudding of her heart. Minutes passed in silence. Maybe the coast was clear. Emily tilted her head to the side, just far enough to see around the bust. She stifled a bleat of fear. There, mere inches away, were the pant cuffs of an immaculate, tailor-made suit. She'd only seen a glimpse of the guard during the attack. Now she took him all in, bulging, dense muscle, barely contained by the strained threads of his suit. He'd obscured his face with an ancient gas mask, one of the ones with owl-like eye holes and a massive filter that hangs down like an elephant's trunk. The guard's head perked up, perhaps sensing one of Emily's surviving friends further down the hall. As he stepped forward, Emily finally understood why they'd been caught unawares. The guard's feet were shoeless, allowing him to glide across the marble floors on his cornflower blue socks like a ghost. As he stepped past the pedestal, his right hand swung forward, and Emily saw what it held. The handle of a long, deadly sledgehammer. Even from here, she could see that the head was covered in gristle and rapidly drying blood. Josh's blood. Emily could still feel that single, brutal crunch vibrating in her teeth. One moment, they'd been spraying slogans on the wall. The next, Josh's skull had been crushed like an empty can. Metal against bone. A war bone had been losing for 40,000 years. Emily shuddered silently in her hiding place. But only too late did she notice how close her shoulder was to the Nero bust. She grabbed for it, but was only able to stop the pedestal from toppling. The bust was already out of reach. The head cartwheeled through the air, a glum, disapproving look on its face until... Smash! The guard froze mid-step and slowly turned on his heel until he was staring directly at her, until Emily could see her reflection in the tinted lenses of his gas mask. The guard raised a single, shushing finger to his filter. Only then did she begin to scream. Further into the house, Emily's screams reached Damien, and for a moment he felt an absurd flutter of relief. If Emily was being killed, then he had a chance to escape. Then, as the thought fully processed, he felt disgusted with himself. I mean, fuck, he didn't even really want to be here. He had a crush on Pat. Pat was into this environmental shit. Therefore, Damien was into this environmental shit. Now, Pat was who the fuck knows where, Josh was dead, Emily was getting killed, and he... He was going to survive. That's what he knew he was going to do. Damien took off sprinting towards where he remembered the front door being, but... Fuck, man, he thought. This place was the size of a labyrinth and just as twisted. Right, left, right, right, left, passing a never-ending parade of dining rooms, servants' quarters, lounges, small and large, libraries, studies, smoking rooms, cocaine rooms. And then... Damien turned the final corner, but there was no exit at the end of the hole. 
Just Emily's body, illuminated by a square of moonlight filtering down from the skylights. Her right leg was smashed badly enough that it appeared to have an extra joint. And standing over her body was the guard, with his sledgehammer raised. But he wasn't looking at her. He was looking at Damien. Fuck. Damien turned and sprinted back along the corridor, not caring that his rubber soles were slapping the floor like sonar pinging off of a submarine. Right, left, left, right, left, taking the corners in reverse, realizing far too late that all the beautiful rooms he'd passed had gates on the windows, or bars, or no windows at all. The floor plan was getting jumbled in his head. Was it right or left? He just needed to find Pat. Then everything would be okay. They would escape together, live happily on a farm as far away from this slaughterhouse as they could. It was a good final thought to have, right before a sledgehammer smashes you square in the jaw. The guard knew the house, of course. Knew how to cut Damien off. Where to stand so his sledgehammer could swing out from the shadows, catching Damien mid-stride. Then Damien was laying on his back, staring up at the ceiling, tasting his broken teeth and bone marrow, thinking he should probably be dead already. The guard crouched down beside him. I'm sorry, but this is about personal responsibility, he said. Damien wasn't sure whether the guard's voice was being muffled by the gas mask, or if his eardrums had been ruptured. Either way, he couldn't respond. His mouth was too full of blood. I'm just holding you accountable. I hope you can understand that. And Damien had just enough time to be confused before he died. Pat held his tongue between his teeth, an affectation he developed from watching his father do the same as he tinkered in the garage. It helped Pat focus. And Pat needed to focus, needed to keep his hands from shaking. He usually picked locks to get into houses, this was the first time he'd picked one to get out. Why would anyone have locks on the inside of their house? Thought Pat. He refused to acknowledge the answer his imagination readily provided. You put locks on the inside if you're trying to trap people. No, Pat couldn't accept that. Accepting that meant more pressure, and the last thing Pat needed now was more pressure. He let out a whimper of relief as the final pin dropped into place. But before he could turn the lock, before the door swung open, before he felt that first breath of fresh night air that means escape. Before any of that, Pat felt a shadow fall across the floor. He almost got out of the way, but a sledgehammer doesn't care about almost. The glancing blow against his temple was enough to knock Pat to the ground, hard. He attempted to stand, to run but found that his body preferred to be prone, thanks. Dexterous fingers slipped across the marble as he tried to pull himself forward, away from the cornflower blue socks that were directly in his eyeline. One of those socks gently dug under his shoulder and gently flipped him onto his back. That was actually pretty nice, thought Pat. The floor had been too cold on his cheek, uncomfy. On his back he could see the pretty cathedral ceilings. Also, something warm was trickling down the side of his head. That was nice, too. You know, this is just a job, the guard said, the words flattened out by the gas mask. If I wasn't doing this, someone else would be. 
Right, of course, said Pat. He was a bit dazed, trying to remember where he was and the name of this guy. I'm sorry, I, I forgot your name. Oh, don't worry about that, said the guard. And then, could you open your mouth? Pat opened his mouth. The guard placed a long metal rod between his lips. Pat hardly noticed. He felt like he was forgetting something important and was busy trying to remember. That's a rock chisel, said the guard. Before electric or pneumatic drills were invented, this was the only way to drill for oil. This one belonged to my great-great-grandfather. Uh, said Pat, as best he could. The chisel was heavy, and he had to rest the thin edge on his tongue to stop it from falling to the back of his throat. Miners would hit the top part of the chisel over and over with sledgehammers until the chisel broke through the rock, explained the guard. Pat nodded, feeling his teeth clack against the ancient iron. What was he forgetting? It was on the tip of his tongue. The guard planted his feet and reeled back before swinging the sledgehammer down in a clean, perfect arc. A sound, not unlike that of a gong, echoed through the house, reaching all the way to the back door. Lucas shivered in his hiding place, an old dumbwaiter, as a ribbon of expletives fluttered through his mind. He was the photography-slash-social-media person. He knew how to capture the angles. He knew how to make this shit look professional. No easy feat considering the low lighting he always had to work with. Even more impressive because he had to work with a cell phone camera. These covert operations didn't allow for his bulky DSLR. Lucas's ears twitched. Had he heard something outside the dumbwaiter, or was it just his imagination? He pulled out his phone and turned on the camera before pressing the lens up to the minuscule gap between the door and the frame. The screen took a moment to focus. Lucas's eyes widened. The guard was silently creeping right past his hiding spot. Lucas froze, not even thinking, just waiting until the guard finally padded off screen. When he did, Lucas allowed himself a slow, quiet exhale. He didn't notice as a single bead of sweat dripped down from his finger. It traveled slowly down the length of his phone's touchscreen until it reached the shutter button where it was just heavy, warm, and conductive enough to trigger it. A tiny click emanated from Lucas's phone, but in that silent mansion, it might as well have been an air raid siren. Lucas pushed himself to the back corner of the dumbwaiter and squeezed his eyes shut, praying for the guard to just ignore it, just keep on walking. Prayers that went unanswered. The guard's footsteps approached the dumbwaiter. Closer. Closer. Lucas planted his back foot, preparing to fling himself through. He wasn't going to die curled up in a hole like a rat. The guard's hand groped along the dumbwaiter until Lucas heard the clack of a bolt sliding into place. He'd locked it. Confused, Lucas relaxed for a moment. A new sound filled the space. A quiet scratching, like a nail touching a plank right before it's driven home. Bang! 
The guard smashed the top of the rock chisel, making a neat hole through the dumbwaiter door, through the phone, and through Lucas's gut. Lucas's screams echoed a thousand times in the confines of the dumbwaiter as the guard ripped the rock chisel free. Lucas lunged for the dumbwaiter door, pushing desperately, but the lock held. Another bang as the rock chisel erupted through Lucas's left palm, severing the taut ligaments like broken harp strings. Another chorus of echoed screams. Lucas tried to shrink away, but the rock chisel held him in place like a pinned butterfly, ready to be added to a collection. The guard unlocked the dumbwaiter door and wrenched it open. Lucas followed his impaled limb, tumbling out onto the floor. The weight of his body finally pulled his hand free, and the light breeze that whistled through the gaping wound lit exposed nerves on fire. Nearly unconscious, Lucas looked up at the guard. He could have sworn he saw a smile on that face. But, of course, gas masks can't smile. A few delicious minutes later, the guard had finished with Lucas. He wiped the blood from his sledgehammer, careful to get every last bit. The hammer was an antique. It needed to be kept in perfect condition. All these swings, all this blood and bone. It was liable to damage the ancient iron. Thankfully, he only had one intruder left. The girl still passed out with a shattered leg. He turned the final corner to that hallway where he'd left her broken body. But he was greeted only by the blank gaze of a Roman emperor, staring up from the floor. She was nowhere to be seen. The guard huffed into his gas mask with annoyance. She was making this more difficult than it needed to be. They all were. It was frustrating. Upsetting, even. The guard hated that feeling. He stopped, propped his hammer against the wall, and did a few sun salutations, like his yoga instructor had taught him. He focused on the breathing exercises he'd learned in therapy. In through the nose, hold, and then out through the mouth. It helped. Calmly, he reviewed the events of the evening. He'd tagged the girl with his hammer when she'd bolted, snapping her tibia like a twig. She'd passed out hard right after. So, when the guard saw the other kid blast around the corner, he gave chase, assuming she wouldn't be going anywhere. So, according to the facts, she was badly injured and groggy from passing out. That meant she must still be nearby. And he was right. In a sense. What the guard didn't know was that Emily had once finished a 10K on a fractured ankle, or that in 10th grade, during rehearsals for the school play, she'd had to fake fainting dozens of times. The moment the guard had chased after Damien, she'd raised herself up and followed, dragging her broken leg. Damaged as she was, she knew she didn't stand a chance unless she stayed hidden until she found an edge. So, just like him, she removed her shoes to quiet her steps and kept to the shadows. She bit her tongue hard as she watched the guard kill her friends, waiting for the moment he thought he was safe. And that moment was five seconds ago. The guard turned to retrieve his hammer, only to find it already on a collision course with his head. He turned a split second before impact. The guard let out a low grunt of pain as Emily caved in his shoulder. He spun like a bloody top and collapsed in a heap. Shit, thought Emily. 
She missed. Finish this, quickly, screamed Emily's reptile brain. She limped forward and raised the hammer for the killing blow. But the guard kicked out, finding her broken leg. She collapsed to her good knee, finally letting out that anguished scream that had been building inside of her for that long, long night. Darkness prickled the edges of her vision. She willed herself not to pass out. The guard grabbed the belt of her fanny pack, wrenching her to the ground hard enough that the plastic buckle shattered, sending the pack skittering across the floor. Then, a tight grip on her hair as the guard used his good arm to pull her head back. Emily's fingers searched for his eye sockets, but only found his ancient gas mask. She ripped it off, expecting the grizzled face of an anonymous mercenary. But, no. It was Spencer. Michael Spencer himself, the owner of this house of horrors and COO of Kincaid Oil and Gas. You piece of shit, spat Emily. Michael recoiled, as if the words had hurt him more than the sledgehammer. How dare you speak to me that way, he said, a thick, furious intensity contorting his features. You fucking criminal, you fucking thug. Wouldn't you do anything you could to defend your property? This anodyne comment whirled through Emily's brain. Ten thousand possible replies turned their noses to the air as it passed, each ready to pounce. What about how oil and gas projects destroy environments, or the dense web of global biodiversity impacted by rising CO2? And what about the human lives ruined by flooding and famine? Don't they have a right to defend themselves from him? And that's without getting into how global dependency on oil is underwritten by massive government subsidies. Therefore, if this malignant industry must exist, it should be nationalized, and this house-slash-compound should be taxpayer-owned and open to the public. Or, let's ignore the more complex ideas. How is execution a justified response to any non-violent crime, let alone graffiti on a wall in a room he barely ever enters? But... It didn't matter that she was smarter than him, that she understood the sociology, biology, and chemistry of climate disaster, or the basic ethical responsibilities that humans have to one another. None of it mattered. Because he was the one with the fucking sledgehammer. Spencer tangled his fingers in her hair, and with a firm yank, he pulled her off himself entirely. Emily felt her orbital bone crack as Spencer proceeded to bash her head against the floor once, then twice more. Her fingers frantically danced across the floor, searching for a weapon, something, anything. Her hands found only her fanny pack, zipper now hanging open. It would have to do. With her last bit of consciousness... Emily unsheathed her spray paint from the fanny pack and unleashed a thick mist of paint across Spencer's eyes. Spencer howled and then let out a low moan as Emily twisted her good leg around his thighs and kneed him directly in the balls. He released her hair. Emily took that tiny opening and ripped, bit, and chewed at it, trying to widen it just enough to escape through. Spencer reeled, pushing himself away with his legs and good arm, but Emily pulled herself after him, holding him to the ground as she slowly pushed herself alongside his body until finally she straddled him. Spencer opened his mouth to say something, or maybe to beg for mercy, or maybe to explain why this wasn't such a big deal. Emily never found out 
because the moment he spoke, she jammed her spray can between his teeth. Spencer had just enough time to realize what was happening before the can spewed a thick coat of noxious paint down his gullet. His fingernails left long, bloody claw marks across her face, but still she held down the button. His fists beat against her shattered leg, but still she held down the button. She kept spraying even after Spencer's grip began to slacken, even after the paint filled his lungs, his throat, even after it bubbled up between his lips. He blinked one final time, eyelids smearing neon green across his corneas. Only then did she release the spray can. Then she collapsed and waited for death. Only death didn't come. What came instead was a thought. Michael Spencer didn't live alone in this gated community. His father and brother owned the neighboring properties, and other board members for Kincaid Oil and Gas lived all along this winding private road. She checked her phone, still miraculously undamaged. It was 3 a.m. They would still be asleep. In just a few minutes, she'd crafted a simple splint for her leg using the rock chisel. Emily picked up the discarded sledgehammer. She hefted it. Once. Twice. It would do. And as she limped from wing to wing, property to property, her socks never raised a whisper from the marble floors, no matter how bloody they became. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation for an ad-free RSS, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes discussions, and more. This week's episode, Extinction Event, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to John Montgomery, Dread Bull, Alexia Walgreen, Dan McLaughlin, Claire H., Vivian Long, Savannah Stone, Stephanie Burt, Philip Dutton, Wolfson, Misty Connolly, Francis K.R., Caitlin Tiffany, Noah, and Dr. Worm for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on social media, at The Wrong Station, and email us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.